Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, we are still in our series on the household code tax, or the house toffle tax. We need to wrap up Titus. We're going to flip over to, to 1 Peter, and 1 Peter is going to give us a little bit of a different take, not a Pauline take, but a Petrine take. And that's going to lead us nicely into a consideration, not just in vocation in the narrow sense, which we've largely been focused on the one estate that is the family, and there are two other estates. There is the estate of the state, the political sphere, and then there is the estate of the church. And sometimes church and state are reflected in our theology as the two kingdoms. So Peter's going to transition us into a consideration of the estate of the state and our relationship to it as Christians. I think we're only going to maybe stick a finger in the water uh, this week in regard to that, while in the weeks to come, we'll be focusing more heavily on that. So there are, in addition to bringing your Bible in the weeks to come, you'll want to bring your small catechism. If you don't have one of these, there's no time like the present to purchase one. I don't even mind if you get on your Amazon app and order it right this very second so that it arrives at your door by the time you get home from church. Little drones coming and dropping it off. My parents live in Colorado, and I can tell that it's this arcane, backward place now, because when I order things from Amazon, it takes like two days to get there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, now when I put, no sooner than I push the button, I hear the drone engine firing up and coming right from my house. So, small catechism. And if you have anything other than the 2017 edition, there's nothing particularly special about the year 2017. It's just the latest update to the catechism and explanation. That's what you're going to want. If you have an older version, you're going to be frustrated because the content's not going to be the same. The pagination's not going to be the same. We update our catechisms and our study Bibles as a synod like every 20 to 40 years or something like that. So you're going to do pretty good cost averaged out over time. Uh, it might even make it to a, a less than a penny a day. So it's just worthwhile keeping up to date with those two resources, the Lutheran Study Bible, whatever the most recent version is, and um, the Catechism, whatever that most recent version is. So we're going to be looking at that because there's this thing in here, which you may remember from days of yore, back when you were young and optimistic, um, <laughs> called the Table of Duties. And the Table of Duties lays out uh, these three estates, the center of which is the family, and then the, the vocations, the six chief vocations that we've walked through. So you'll want to bring this next week. And tangentially, as we go into an analysis of our relationship as Christians to the state, 
Uh, this is a book that, you know, when I recommend the catechism, it's, you know, if you love me, you'd buy it. It's not quite the same level with this text, which is the Magdeburg Confession. You can get it also from Amazon. It's inexpensive. This one is translated by Dr. Matthew Colvin. And it's not nearly as necessary, but this Magdeburg Confession is dated 1550. So, the, just to give you a little context, Luther dies in the 1540s. I can't remember. I think it's 1546, if that rings a bell. And then, um, so 1550 is just four years later. The Book of Concord comes into its completion 1580. So it's 30 years prior to that. But this confession is written because the state is trying to force the Magdeburgers into certain religious practices that they don't want to do. How do they deal with that in a biblical way? How do they think of texts like the text in First Peter? We're going to get to uh, chapter 13 of Romans. And then by extension, how do we think about those things today? Is Romans 13 simply a blank check that if the government says it and you're a good Christian, you have to do it? Uh, no, not the case. And yet, one of the things we want to do, I think we were all caught off guard by COVID, especially here in California, and by the governmental shutdowns and strong-arming that we endured. There's a sense in which that caught us off guard, and maybe even, and I'll, I'll even cop to this myself, maybe even made us a little bit reactionary. So part of what we want to do is settle in firmly convicted of what the scriptures teach so that we're not reactionary or emotional or matching screeching with screeching. Uh, rather, just simply stately, humble in our knowledge of the office, humble in our knowledge uh, by, by office, I mean um, the office of the left-hand kingdom, the ruler, and also, though, humble when we dissent because the person in that office has stepped outside of the office in terms of their performance of it. They've become tyrannical. And so in what, in what ways should we combat that? Can we combat that? This is a uh, foundational text for exploring that idea in historical Lutheran context. So, uh, again, not necessary to purchase, but just if you're interested, the Magdeburg Confession of 1550. Uh, Lutheran Study Bible and Luther's Small Catechism, definitely to be owned. All right, with that lengthy introduction out of the way, just kind of where we are and where we're going, in Titus chapter 2, we left off... At verse 9, the final pairing of the vocations that we've seen elsewhere. We've seen these also in Ephesians. We've seen these also in Colossians. Nothing terribly new here. But at verse 9, we see slaves and masters. And of course, throughout this series, we've thought that that best translates in our context to employers and employees or managers and managed there's a sense in which if you're in middle management, as probably all of us are to, some, to one degree or another, uh, or most of us, then the, you, both of these 
apply. They apply in terms of your subservience to one who's above you and um, in terms of your management of those who are below you, so to speak. So, verse 9, again, Paul is writing to Titus, a young pastor, and telling Titus the healthy doctrine that he is supposed to insist upon, and that doctrine consists very much of attitudinal and behavioral items. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of our God and Savior. All right, so now Paul is not explicit here, but slaves be submissive to their own masters. Elsewhere, he has equated masters with the relationship we have with Christ, Christ our master and we his servants or slaves. And that's implicit here. Um, Paul has no express command to the masters, but what is implicit is that this is how your slave is to be to you. How do you think you ought to be to your slave? Now, at the end of the list, we see a recurring idea so that in everything they, the slaves, may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So, when a Christian, let's put it in our language, a Christian employee does his or her best for their employer or directly for their manager or something like that, then you are in fact doing nothing less than adorning the doctrine of God our Savior. Beautifying, glorifying the doctrine of God our Savior. How so? Very concretely, by your conduct, you are letting your light so shine that men may give glory not to you, but to the God whom you serve, your God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Christians, in fulfilling their duties, are meant to look different than other people fulfilling their duties. Now, it's not always possible, but it is frequently possible. Our goal should not be to meet the pagan standard, but to exceed the pagan standard, and in such a way that people are intrigued and would like to know more. And that thus it becomes known that you are a Christian and that you serve so willingly, so freely, because Christ has served you so willingly, so freely, so profoundly by taking the form of a servant himself, being born as a human being, born under the law, and being obedient himself, so much for our allergy to obedience, if Jesus our master himself is known as being obedient, obedient not only to death when the father, his master, says, I want you to lay down your life, but being obedient even to the point of death on a cross. Shameful, 
wrongfully condemned, naked, tortured, with every appearance of being forsaken, not only by man, but also by God. So contemplate the extreme obedience of our Lord Jesus Christ, the extreme submissiveness of our Lord Jesus Christ to the will of his Father, and you will find an endless source then of a kind of humiliation that is in itself paradoxically a glorification. That's the mystery of the cross, and that's the mystery of the cruciform, cross-shaped form that our lives as Christians take. So, again, we can consider these principles, and perhaps we should, in light of Paul ending his section on vocation and his argument on vocation here in Titus, with just such an insight, It does us well to go back and look at the role of wives to husbands, the role of children to parents, and of course here slaves to masters, that there is nothing beneath us as Christians in terms of submitting and obeying if our Lord Jesus Christ himself submits and obeys. And in fact, this submitting and obeying is precisely his glory. That's John's reflection. John calls these things his glory. And so they are our glory as well. A very different take than American culture. A very different take where, you know, you need to record every little thing you do on your resume so that you can boast in yourself This is more, let my actions speak louder than my words, and let my actions reflect the majesty of my master, even as I conduct myself in the callings to which he has called me, these vocations. All right, Um, I do want to cheat and go one or maybe a few verses more. Because I want you to see what Paul does with this. It's the same thing that Jesus does with it. Now remember, in the original text, there's no paragraph breaks, and I would argue that it would be just as well to not have one here. We leave off with the idea that in everything, you may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared. Now this grace of God appearing is maybe subtle, maybe not so subtle, but a reference to our Lord Jesus himself. How does grace, this attribute in God, appear if grace is incarnate? So the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. Now, that's going to be regardless of our vocations or status in life. The grace of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, appears to bring salvation to all. It doesn't matter what role you have to play in this short life. 
And this salvation is such that, verse 12, he's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Ungodliness is going to be everything antithetical to what he's just laid out. And of course, worldly passions are those very things that we're all so deeply infected with. And especially in our time, in our culture, those things we're saying, well, this thing that Pastor Rhodey's saying, actually this thing that St. Paul has written is alien to me as a 21st century American. Right. God is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. these worldly desires. And why is he training us? Because we can be instantaneously over and overnight done with it, right? You can simply pray the right prayer, go to sleep, wake up, and you're free from worldly passions and ungodliness. No, <laughs> hardly. So there is an ongoing training And this is predicated upon the salvation by grace through faith apart from works. That's what it means that the grace of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, appears to give salvation for all people, training us, those who have believed in him, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So this is an ongoing battle with your own sinful flesh, ungodliness, and with the world, the worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. So this is what God has for us. This is the goal. This is what we're being trained. This is what the discipline's for. This is what the word's for. This is what the encouragement is for. This is what the church is for. Not only the proclamation of Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, but also that we might be trained to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That's the negative. Positively to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Right now. We don't wait for heaven to try to become saints. The goal is to be and become saints now. Paul, never a fan of the period, always a fan of the comma, continues in verse 13. I never thought about that. Most most young children are Pauline in that respect. There's a comma. You just wait. You wait for the period and it never comes. Conjunctions abound. And, but, those kinds of things abound. But it never really, hmm, I haven't pieced that together before. So, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. And this is really the heart. I mean, you can't reflect on what came before, the vocational content, without reflecting on the person of Christ, which is what, which is what Paul is having us do here. That Christ gave himself for us to redeem us, to purchase us from all lawlessness. Should we continue in lawlessness? Because nobody can keep the law perfectly, so we should just give up, right? Wrong. We should not continue in lawlessness. Why? Because that's a rejection of the cross itself. 
The cross of Jesus, the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, is to give himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Not to redeem us so that we can do all lawlessness. To redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession. I mean, to mold and shape us into himself is implicit here in this idea of him purchasing us as a people for his own possession. Who are zealous for good works. Now, the vocational format is, is where those good works are. That's like the bread and butter. You don't have to go looking for like, oh no, where am I going to find some good works to do today? Wake up and consider if you're a husband or a wife or a mother or a father, son or a daughter, an employer or employee, and already you've got laid out for you what is pleasing to God. Good works aplenty. But we want to be zealous for good works, and if while we're doing our bread and butter vocations, there are opportunities to do exceedingly great works and to, you know, pour out ourselves for the sake of others, we want to be zealous for those as well. So it's not to say that vocation is a limit. It's not to say that vocation is a limit. Vocation is the bread and butter, is the daily sustenance and daily life for us as Christians. Um, But no good works are excluded by that. So I don't know, how often do you hear this? That the whole reason Christ died is to make you zealous for good works. I hear an awful lot of hand-wringing among Lutherans as of late. Oh, I don't know, too much emphasis on good works. You might slip into self-justification. Notice how Paul just isn't really concerned about that at all. Christ died. Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness, to purify for himself a people of his own possession. And that purification is such that we be zealous for good works. Okay, 15. Again, here you see Paul saying this to Titus, a young pastor who's going to be an overseer of other pastors. Declare these things. Exhort, which is positive. Set these things before people. Commend them to people. That's exhortation. Look at the wonders that God has for you to do. And by the way, your reward for even the smallest one of these things will not be lost. Even something so insignificant as giving a little child a cup of cold water will not lose its reward. So that's the exhortation that what you do in this life matters and has meaning, and that's true even if it doesn't have pragmatic value or effect. I think that that's particularly what gets us down as 21st century uh, Westerners, is we tend to think overly pragmatically. This kind of pseudo-scientific frame where it's like, if I do something, but it doesn't have a result, then I shouldn't have done it. It was a waste of time. But the beautifully freeing thing about vocation and good works is everything you do, whether it has pragmatic value or not, 
is seen by your father who sees in secret and will reward you. That's not the promise of Rhodey or Luther or even Paul, but Jesus himself. And this is, in many respects, the medication to the nihilism and meaninglessness of our lives that have so affected us that we've even bent our theology around it frequently, such that if it doesn't have pragmatic value, if there isn't some lesson I can extract from it, or something that I can do that will turn this curse into a blessing, then it, then it isn't worth anything, or, it, or it's meaningless, or it's purposeless. Nothing could be further from the truth. The beauty of good works is such that it goes in a ledger that can never be erased, because God keeps that ledger. He keeps that reward book. The smallest kindness that you didn't even notice is recorded by him. That's the beauty. That's the meaning. That's the purpose. And the more we embrace this, the more we'll realize that there is a kind of, I mean this in a non-theological way, but a kind of gracefulness with which we can proceed through life. A kind of beauty that remains unaffected even when the world is doing its worst, even when the circumstances all around us are profoundly ugly. Again, we need only think of our Lord Jesus to grasp this, that we, in retrospect and in hindsight, if we were to zip back 2,000 years and time and watch the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus, we would see ugliness, and horror, and sin, and darkness, and yet shining in the middle of it all, we would see love embodied, grace embodied in his obedience to the Father, perfect love to the very one who forsakes him on the cross, and doing so for the sake of men who hate and crucify him, perfect love for neighbor. And in his silence, as he endures and defends not himself, a beauty and a grace so profound that you couldn't have a dry eye. And it's that beauty and that grace that he gives us as we're zealous for good works, as we view ourselves as worshiping God through what we do. You can look at your life and say there's ugliness and darkness and despair and failure all around. How could this possibly be beautiful? Well, only as the cross and passion of our Lord itself is beautiful. By faithfulness, lovingness, and graciousness in the midst of those things. As we, like our Lord Jesus, are zealous for good works and fully entrusting ourselves and our deeds to the Father as fitting worship for Him. So then, everything has meaning. Everything has purpose. We're talking actively about good works, but so also passively when you endure afflictions and crosses and sufferings, you have an opportunity to endure those 
in faith, crying out to God. Yes, in complaint, but also giving him thanks and praise and glory due his name. Blessing him not only when he gives, but blessing him also and possibly when he takes away. This is your worship. There's no such thing as being locked away to rot in a prison cell or in a a retirement home, if you want to use that. I don't know if there's much of a difference between the former and the latter sometimes. Food might be better in prison. But, (laughs) But there's no such thing as there's no reason for me to continue. There's no purpose for me to continue. The reason and the purpose is that God has you here And insofar as you retain faith and cry out to him, this is glory. This is glorious sacrifice, glorious worship, and of infinite value in his eyes. Where else are you going to get this in the entirety of the cosmos? Where else are you going to get this in the the entirety of the cosmos that, that the very one who is, if not afflicting, at least allowing you to be afflicted, hears you praising him? There is nothing more precious. There is nothing more valuable. This is the gold refined by fire that makes all the gold of this world be fit for what goes underneath the saints' feet in heaven, while the saints themselves are the true gold. And so this is something we all need to embrace. And I think uh, I have a particular view towards this because it is almost universally the lament of the aged as they decline, as they're finally locked away in one of these homes. Why doesn't God just take me? There's no purpose for me in being here. I would rather you have this so deeply imprinted in your soul. You're not dependent upon a pastor to come and remind you of these things, though hopefully God would send him. But that you have these things so deeply imprinted on your soul and that through years and decades of practice, you would realize that, oh, the only thing that looks different now that I'm in this home or in this hospital bed or bound to this chair, whatever the case may be, the only thing that's fundamentally changed is the shape and appearance of my altar by which I daily offer sacrifice and worship God. That's what it means to be a royal priest, to offer ourselves, as St. Paul says in Romans, as living sacrifices. If ever there was a paradox, it's that. In the morning, I prepare a sacrifice and watch, the psalmist says. Guess what that sacrifice is? Myself. In whatever circumstances I'm in. That's the beauty and the glory of being a Christian. As we embrace this, then how can we not become zealous for good works? They're all done unto our Father, seen by our Father, rewarded by our Father. And at a certain point, you don't even care about all that because you just love our Father. And in that sense, there's a maturity and a perfection there, this side of heaven that is achieved. Okay, please, trying desperately to get a word in edgewise over here. 
speaking to my existence now, Pastor Rudy. And the one thing that I would say is, having had commandments presented to me, expectations to memorize, having practiced it all my life, it seems like it's coming Um, there, and you and I have had conversation about this. How illiterate, I, it's, it's such a judgment I'm making, but it's what I'm seeing, how few of us older people know God's Ten Commandments. But there is a, there has been a practice all my, you know, 20s, 30s, and whatever, in my 80s, it is uh, the it just seems like, see, I'm ready to cry. There is a, a presentation of humans around me that just set up conversation to say, well, Moses presented the Ten Commandments to the world through God's ordaining. Um, you don't know this? It's, it's just a mystery to how yeah, it has not been... Uh, um, as fluid in in our American culture, but how grateful I am that I w- it was it was expected to know God's word with a presentation in my Lutheran schools. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. I think if you um, if you needed any encouragement in this area, you could start at Psalm one nineteen, and it's a long psalm, but you won't have to get far before you're struck with how often. The psalmist, in this case David, leads us to pray, marveling at God's law and God's commandments and God's testimonies, of which the Ten Commandments are a central part. Now, they're not the only thing that he's talking about. He's talking about the whole of the scriptures. But the Ten Commandments of the Lord are in both Testaments a central part in terms of our conduct in this life. So, to simply commit those commandments to memory and to make them part of your morning routine, as, the, as Luther suggests, you make the sign of the cross and then recite the Ten Commandments and then the Creed and the Our Father. This, this small daily act is a way of enacting that glory and praise and that experience that David has as he delights in the word, the law, the commandments, the testimonies of God, they become our delight and our instruction as well. They become, in a very real sense, a light shining in the darkness, a lamp that guides our feet as we walk, not in the abstract, but as we walk through this very day. You see, and so that you can do nothing better for yourself. I mean... We're so foolish as Americans because we all have our 401ks and we all have that buttoned down. You got your insurance, you got everything else. And all this stuff that in the end isn't going to help you one bit. But what we won't take the time to do is take the 10 minutes it takes to memorize 
or refresh your memory on the Ten Commandments, and then the approximately 25 seconds it might take to recite them every morning, maybe longer if you're being ponderous. But that's it. What an investment in your future and in yourself to simply have this written into your heart on a daily basis so that when you are all hung up and you are in a bleak and dark spot, That word of God dwells in you richly and does not depart, but continues to shine its light, even if that light is simply delighting in the very thing that God's people have always delighted in. Okay, yes. But how does one know uh, an appreciation for the Christ on the cross unless you review the Ten Commandments played against your own life? Yeah, very well said. Very well said. You see the depth of our Savior, uh, of our Savior's grace in saving us and fulfilling those commandments. I think you see the depth of his character and his grace in a different way and one that inspires us to want to be as he is. I mean, that's the thing. Jesus is, this is lost to us because we're so interested in the Christological debates, but the idea of, um, okay, so when I say that Jesus is, true God and true man, we immediately think in these Christological categories. But the sense in which he is true man is even deeper still. I mean, so also with God, but let's not go there. So the sense in which he is true man means that Jesus is and shows what it means to be truly human. We have not become, in this way, we have not become truly human until we have been conformed into the image of Jesus. So again, viewed from this strange angle, life isn't about being a human being. Life is about becoming a human being. Becoming the man, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose image we will be conformed forever. We're not fully human until we're patterned after him. And so that's a That's a way to think of that confession that not only is he true God, but true man and man in the fullest extent. And you can do that like you don't have to go, oh, I've lost all these all these years or oh, I was never taught that or I've never thought this way or I've never um, practiced these things or what. It doesn't matter. It's all yours instantaneously when you realize that what God is doing is as the potter is with the clay, so he is in shaping you into the image of Christ, which is another way of saying shaping you into a true human being for all eternity. So like what we view right now as scars are in fact in eternity the very shape and form into which our glory is revealed. How can I say this? Because it's the very essence of our Lord Jesus scars. When he shows his disciples his hands and his side, even after he's raised, they rejoice that it is he. And from the the showing forth of those very wounds, he issues forth his peace be unto you, his absolution. Uh, In a Wesley hymn, um, we like his hymns, not really his theology. Uh, But he talks about the the scars that, uh, that Jesus bears upon his return in the eyes of the faithful are dazzling jewels. 
And that's precisely the reversal of the suffering and agony and affliction of this life is reversed into the very essence of glory in that which is to come. And this patterning of Christ is patterned in all of us. So you don't have to look at the wounds you've suffered, even if they're by your own foolishness, even if they're by consequence of your own sin. You don't have to look at that and be like, well, I'm going to be a second-class citizen forever. Or I'm going to be in heaven, but it's going to be miserable. Anyone who thinks that way isn't thinking about the God who transforms the scars into the glory. That's what he's doing. And that's available to all of us all the time as Christians, this way of thinking. It is, in fact, true. It will be brought to fruition, not merely believed by faith, but seen with the eyes. But for now, it is to be believed by faith. And there's no way you've precluded yourself from this wonder of of what God is doing in making you human. All right. So this theology, by the way, goes all the way back to the church fathers. It's how they often thought. They thought of uh, this life as being in utero, in the womb, and that you're not yet born until you are born unto eternal life. That's when your life actually begins. If you leave this life dying, like let's say you, uh, you, I mean, if, you, if you're just a pagan, like it doesn't even register. You never even lived. You were just dead in your trespasses and sins. But let's say in this life you became a Christian, you were conceived, there's new life, and then you, you lost your faith. You died before you died. Then the early church considered you to be stillborn. And they made every effort, of course, to bring you back to life in the womb that when you die... You won't die, you won't be stillborn, but when you die, you will in fact be born a true human being. So a lot of this flows from Paul's theology of baptism and being conformed into the death of Christ, united with him in a death like his. We might also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Okay, I won't belabor that point, but it is good to see... um, that this has biblical moorings and biblical foundation and then is alive and well in the history of the church. Yes, please. Just to bring it back to the good works thing, if we're looking at this life in utero for Christians, then, you know, if you see yourself in the church as part of the the church as mother, right? So you're, every person is kind of mothering other Christians, you know, mentoring other Christians, uh, be they male or female, so that you could see it in terms of, I mean, pregnancy isn't easy for any mother, right? That's a lot of work. Um, mentoring and caring for other Christians through this life is not easy, you know. Yeah. It hurts, you know. Yeah, but absolutely. It, but it's, that's the vocation part there, so. Yeah, thank you for that. I mean, it's reminiscent of what Paul says in, in Romans 8, and of course this is predicated upon some of the statements that Jesus makes in John's gospel about the woman, and particularly the woman in travail, uh, the woman in sorrow as she's giving birth. But in Romans 8, Paul talks about um, the whole creation. So this is a cosmic thing, right? Um, That in its tumults, when you see like famines and earthquakes and the bombing of uh, Ukraine and, you know, what are 
whatever else might be the case. Um, what you're supposed to see in all these upheavals are is a woman in labor, the cosmos in labor. And then you see that like an earthquake and famines and um, you know creation itself like crying out. You have uh, the woman in labor, but why is she in labor? Who's she going to give birth to? The sons of glory. And just as Jesus uses this, the, the woman who is in great travail and sorrow forgets for the joy of a child being born, Paul's point is parallel, that the whole cosmos groaning in childbirth up until the very present, that when the sons of God are born and revealed, these sufferings, the birthing and travail, won't even be compared to the glory that is revealed in the sons of the Father, in these sons of glory, in these sons of light, of which we are. And so, you know, the beauty, too, is you're, you're taking the future and you're dragging it into the present and instantiating the new creation and the new heavens and the new earth even now. And Satan's resisting that with all his might. That's why it's so hard to do good works <laughs> and why no good deed goes unpunished. But that's what you're doing, is you're dragging the future into the present, and he hates it. He can't stand it. He knows that he's powerless against it. He knows it's all going to come like an avalanche when it does come. But that's the glory of what you're doing also. And then viewed in, in spiritual warfare, I mean, this is you, like, with your heel over the head of the serpent. As Paul says, that the God of peace might crush him under our heels as well, under your heels as well. So, yeah, thank you for that reflection. Please. Uh, I don't know how to articulate this, but you said we're not fully human until we're patterned after him. And yet all of us who have been fighting the, the seemingly endless fight against abortion, we cite God knew us in our mother's womb. Mm-hmm. And, and that the, the child that's in the womb is fully human. Mm-hmm. And so... Those aren't contradictory, I suppose. Not in the least. But I'm trying to wrap my head around. Yeah, I mean, this is this is just a more uh, advanced way of thinking. Um, so you can trace this back to the original project, if you want, of where God makes Adam and Eve in His image. There are some theologians that take that not to be completed. That God says, let us make man in his image. And he does the way that God makes a seed, but not yet an oak tree. So is that seed a tree or not? So is the baby born uh, in, in utero a human or not? So that's the way we can think. Just because you've got a seed and that is a tree doesn't mean it's what God has intended it to be yet, which is an oak. And I think that that's analogous to the way we would look at all human life conceived in the womb as being human life, but it's not yet truly human in the mature way of becoming an oak tree, of becoming fully formed into the image of Christ. Does that make sense? That's kind of a way of wedding those two ideas. Sure. All right. I see that we're out of time. So next week, bring your small catechism. Next week, jumping into 1 Peter, Romans 13, maybe Revelation 13. 
It's going to be exciting. The Lord be with you.